listeners, and welcome to Classically Trained, a podcast where we discuss modern media that depicts the ancient Mediterranean world, its peoples, and its stories. I am Julia, your resident Greek literature person and linguist-ish. And I'm Allison, your resident Roman archaeologist and late antique scholar. And today we are talking about Percy Jackson book three, The Titan's Curse. Woo! (laughs) Sorry. Okay. Full, like, disclaimer before we really launch in here. It is, we are in the middle of a historic heat wave here in the Pacific Northwest, and I think both Allison and I are slightly wilted at the time of recording. So if this one's a little less energetic than usual, we're sorry. Yes. um, It's 35 degrees. Nobody in the Pacific Northwest has air conditioning, and yesterday it was 40 degrees, and that was before you account for humidity. So, RIP to us, I guess. Yeah. The other thing that it being that hot here uh, might cause is that we are recording with the door and the windows open, so if there's some background noise today, there's not anything we can do about that without suffocating. Yeah, we would like uh, not to boil up and disappear in the middle of the podcast, because frankly, I don't think that would be very fun for you guys either, so. In any case, yeah, Percy Jackson book three, we're really moving on in the series. This one is full of plot. It sure is full of plot. It is also probably my favorite book in the series. There are things that I really like in the later two books, but this book really, like, is the first, like, introduction to a lot of stuff that I, that I really love. Rick Riordan really, like, popped off on this one, so. Yeah, this is the first one where it really feels like he hits his stride right at the beginning of the book. And it's quite delightful. Should we quickly say, I mean, this is probably a given, this is our third Percy Jackson episode, but did you like it? I sure did. Yes, as listeners who have listened to the last ones probably know, I like all of the Percy Jackson books. I read them as a child repeatedly. So, yeah. Yeah, I I liked this one too. I think that I mean see again the heat wave like trying to read this over the last couple of days. I was kind of in a bit of a haze. So, I think I didn't enjoy it as much as I would have if I'd been able to pay attention. But this one's, it's just, like, a well-constructed book. It's well-paced. I mean, they're they are all really enjoyable reads, and I do think he hits his stride in this one, and also this book contains the single funniest joke so far, which we'll get to. We can talk about it at the end amongst the petty things. <laughs> so I actually did have a lot of thoughts about this book. However, I mostly read this book before the heat wave started, and then in my brother's air-conditioned bedroom last night. So, I think that helped with me having actual thoughts. Yeah, I read this book while lying on my couch in my non-air-conditioned, non-fan-having basement home with a ice pack on my belly so that I didn't just die. <laughs> I had other stuff on my brain which was mainly, oh my god, it is so hot. Okay, so I will now attempt to summarize this book. It is difficult. There's a lot of plot. This is take two. Julia just tried to do it off the cuff. It, it didn't did not go, work. <laughs> it, 
It did not go well. So, Percy Jackson and the Olympians, book three, The Titan's Curse, published in 2007, details the continuing adventures of Percy Jackson and his friends. This book opens with the kidnap of Annabeth and the goddess Artemis by the forces of Kronos, and a team must be assembled to rescue them from the mysterious and powerful general. Identity unknown. Percy, Grover, Talia, who is the half-blood daughter of Zeus, who recently stopped being a tree, uh, Zoe Nightshade, who is the lieutenant of Artemis's hunters, and Bianca D'Angelo, who is a newly rescued half-blood uh, parent unknown, must embark upon a journey from Camp Half-Blood in New York to San Francisco in order to rescue Annabeth and Artemis. Along the way, they also seek to prevent Kronos' forces from getting their hands on a strange and powerful new monster that Artemis was hunting, which, if sacrificed by a half-blood, would give them the power to destroy Olympus. After a long journey and many trials, including the loss of Bianca along the way, Percy and his friends arrive in San Francisco and ultimately are able to confront the General and Luke, who is still fighting on Kronos' side. Um, the general is revealed to be Atlas, Zoe's father, um, and Zoe is killed, but they are ultimately able to succeed in their mission, and Annabeth and Artemis are liberated. Artemis' return to uh, Olympus and her attendance at the midwinter meeting of the gods results at the end of the book in the Olympians resolving to take a more active stance in the fight against Kronos, and Talia decides to part from the Half-Bloods in order to join Artemis' hunters. At the very end of everything, Percy resolves that he will take the greater prophecy which has motivated events thus far onto himself, as he is the only remaining immediately um, available half-blood child of one of the big three, and he returns home to New York to rest up and begin preparing for whatever the next few years will bring. I think that's, like, the broad strokes of what happens in this yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. I obviously didn't include any of the details of any of the stuff that they actually do, but we're going to talk about it in detail as we go along in the episode here, so. Yes. So, where shall we begin? Hercules. Yeah. Okay. I was very no thoughts head empty whilst reading this book. I really only had the one thought, which was that I found it kind of interesting that the first book in this series is very um, much a mishmash of like a bunch of different myths. It doesn't really follow any particular mythological framing. It's just sort of an introduction to the world and the characters. But the second book, Sea of Monsters, very much is, like, framed around the Odyssey and the things, the, the, the legends that appear out of the Odyssey. Circe, the Cyclopes, you know, all of that stuff. This book also has kind of a framing around a particular subset of Hellenic myth, which is... Hercules or Heracles in the Greek pronunciation, but Hercules and his tasks. We also get a little bit of Jason in there, but Hercules is like more prominent and also more explicitly discussed, which I just thought was kind of interesting because it's not so much that like Riordan is 
running out of ideas is the wrong word. He clearly has lots of ideas. It's just that he's... Riordan has chosen a particular subset in order to give some structure to which mythology he's drawing on for this book. Of course, there's still lots of other stuff in there, but the big things are drawn from a particular set of stories about a particular hero, and that gives a kind of structure and thematic resonance to a lot of the stuff that happens and allows it to flow together nicely, because then it's like, okay, cool. We get the the Nemean lion pretty close to the beginning, and after that it's like, well, okay, great. So if we're gonna do the Nemean lion, we're probably gonna do other Hercules stories. So if you know any Hercules stories, you can already kind of predict what some of them are going to be, and it gives the reader a frame of familiarity if they are not already broadly familiar with Greek mythology, or like an idea of kind of where to go in their mind as far as like what stories they know. Um, so do you want to give an overview of like the particular um, labors of Hercules that are brought up in this story? Yes. Well, okay, so why don't I first tell you what the labors of Hercules are? Yeah, go, okay, go off. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, and by you, I mean any listeners who might not know all of them, because there are actually quite a lot. I mean, I couldn't list all of them off the top of my head, probably. I could probably only list, like, eight of them. There are 12. So, according... So, there's an order and a complete list of tasks given in the Bibliotheca by Pseudo-Apollodorus, who is a Greek author from the Hellenistic period. There are lots and lots and lots and lots of sources for Hercules and his tasks, this is just an easy go-to because it's pretty complete. And so these are the ta- the 12 labors of Hercules in order according to Pseudo-Apollodorus. If you're reading somebody else, they might be slightly different or come in a different order. That's the disclaimer. Anyways, so the tasks are 1. Slay the Nemean Lion 2. Slay the Nine-Headed Lernaean Hydra 3. Capture the Kyrenian Hind 4. Capture the Aramanthian Boar Five, clean the Augean stables in a single day. Six, slay the Stymphalian birds. Seven, capture the Cretan bull. Eight, steal the mares of Diomedes. Nine, obtain the girdle of Hippolyta, the queen of the Amazons. Ten, obtain the cattle of the three-bodied giant Geryon. Eleven, steal three golden apples of the Hesperides. And twelve, capture and bring back Cerberus. So, we've actually had two in earlier books. We had the Stymphalian birds and the Hydra in Sea of Monsters. Yes, um, and it all is also worth noting that some of these come up in later books. Off the top of my head, what I remember is the stable cleaning and the cattle of Garon. Garion. Yeah, the cattle of Garion come up in the next book. So, I mean, yeah, uh, Riordan does, like, repeatedly, like... Riordan does draw on the labors of Hercules quite a bit, but there are lots of them, so you might as well. (laughs) I mean, yeah, there are lots of them, and they're all interesting, and so, They're also, like, discrete events, which is really useful for him, because he's trying to put, like, discrete events in a book, like, a bunch of them, so. Yeah. So, in this book, we get the Nemean Lion, which is probably, or Nemean Lion, which is probably the most recognizable Heraclean task, I would argue, other than maybe the Hydra. But 
The Lion is kind of broadly recognized, I think, as the first one, and it's also, it's really well known as, like, the thing Heracles did, because it also, one of Heracles, or Hercules, one of his characteristic attributes is the lion skin. It's one of the things that you recognize him by in Greek art, is that he pretty much is always wearing the lion skin. So the slaying of the lion and the acquisition of the lion skin allows him to do a lot of the stuff that he does later. Yeah, because the lion skin has like magical properties to it. So it, it it's like impenetrable, which, you know, makes it pretty useful it, when you're, you know, fighting people or animals. Yes, it gives you immunity to non-magical bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage to put it in Dungeons and Dragons terms. <laughs> so yeah, so there's that. So the Nemean lion, and then we get the Aramanthian boar in this one. And I actually think that's it. <laughs> well, so we get, they visit the Garden of the Hesperides. Right, they visit the Garden of the Hesperides. And the Hesperides, they're like a big kind of a thing in the subtext of all of this. Because yes. what we learn is that Zoe, who is this hunter of Artemis, who has been traveling with Percy at, at all this entire time... She is one of the Hesperides, or she was before she got disowned because she helped Heracles steal the apples. Yes. Which he then took credit for. Yeah, so while so while they don't actually perform Hercules' labor of stealing the golden apples, that myth plays like a central part in the story because of Zoe's involvement in it. And this is really important because it sets up how Hercules is framed uh, by Riordan, and it's also he draws a really like obvious parallel between Percy and Hercules. Uh, so this essentially frames Hercules as like a massive dick, right? He he. I mean, yeah, because he was one. Yes. However, Hercules doesn't always get portrayed as a massive dick, right? Like if you think about something like Disney's Hercules, and because we refer to these like Greek peoples that show up in these stories as heroes, they do tend to get quote-unquote mythologized in a way that is fairly heroic. So yeah, Rick Riordan does, while this particular incident is not necessarily super textual, he definitely draws on like the misogyny of Hercules that is really present in the text. Like when he murders his wife and children in a rage, um, and it is not doesn't have to take responsibility for it because it's all Hera's fault. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Hercules is an interesting figure. I mean, he obviously, like, he does a lot of stuff that is very not great and that he should not be exonerated for, but also a number of the things that he does that are the most not great are things that he is forced to do by other people for reasons that have, that are, like, not to do with him and are more to do with them being bad. It's an interesting choice to decide to frame him as more unambiguously villainous because like, you know, him murdering his wife and children in a rage, you could say, well, he doesn't, he doesn't have to take any responsibility for it because it gets blamed on Hera, but you could just as easily say that Hera decided to murder an innocent woman and her children using that woman's beloved husband as a tool because 
of her own difficulties with her own husband. Mm, yeah. Right? Like, that she's taking that out on Hercules and on these innocent mortals for no reason other than that her husband sucks. And so really, I mean, really, we've come back to the moral of all Greek mythology, which is that Zeus needs to keep it in his pants. Yes. Um, uh, yep, that is the, the yeah. moral of all Greek mythology. And I mean, you could say the same about a number of the other more misogynist things that Hercules does, like stealing the belt of Hippolyta by, like, seducing her. I mean, he wouldn't have been in a position to do that if he had not been ordered to go steal her belt by some other king. Yeah, I mean, I think it is interesting that a lot of the shitty stuff that he does is stuff he doesn't have to take responsibility for. Um, And you also, you know, and I mean, again, this is like one reading, and this is maybe what you would call a feminist reading, um, where he, and along with other heroes like Jason, again, don't really have to take responsibility for the shitty things that they do. And again, like, a female character is kind of blamed for that, like Hera. And then if you look at Jason, you have the thing with Medea, where... Jason's just kind of alongside the really awful things that Medea does. Yeah. Though, of course, Medea does them for him. Yes. But I feel like that's a way of sort of exonerating Jason's, like, responsibility. He's like, well, I didn't ask you to do this. Is kind of the Well, energy. no, I'm, I'm saying that to make him responsible. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. she does, she wouldn't have done that stuff if he hadn't showed up and been like... Wow, you're so hot, marry me. Yeah. And she's like, cool, you promised you would marry me, so I will do these things for you. Yeah. Um, so I think there's... In any case. Yeah, I think, so that's, like, one reading you could take. But there's definitely, like, other d- differing interpretations, some of which you mentioned earlier, so... Yeah. There's lots of ways to portray Hercules and, or Jason for that matter. Well, no, Jason just sucks. Jason, yeah. This is a Jason hate podcast. Yes, this is. But I guess I should say, there are multiple ways to deal with a number of these heroes. Hercules, even Theseus, Perseus, like, all of these guys in kind of that generation, I want to say, are, like, a lot of them are a little bit more ambiguous. Mm. Some of our later figures, I don't know, I, I mean, it obviously, I just think Jason is the absolute worst. I mean, who doesn't? Yeah, but we get, a, we you know, we get some Jason stuff here and there in these books, but we don't really get Jason as the kind of thematic exemplar who's, who Percy is being compared to, I think, in the same way that we got, like, Odysseus in the last book and Hercules in this one, if that makes sense. Yeah. Which, like, shout out to Rick Riordan for just making us not have to talk about Jason too much. Yeah. I think, though, it's kind of draws on this broader thing that Rick Riordan is touching upon, which is very important, which, you know, I kind of mentioned earlier that, like, Greek heroes, what is heroic about them is not what we might consider heroic about a modern hero, right? Like, Greek heroes are not Superman. They're not, like, morally perfect. It's more about doing these incredible deeds. The morality of it, like, doesn't come into it so much. Yeah, and I mean, we talked about this a bit in our Sea of Monsters episode, where, like, even in classical antiquity, things that heroes do are still in context, and certain things are acceptable under some circumstances and not under others. So while there's definitely... You can still be known as a hero if you do stuff that is bad, 
there isn't a complete lack of acknowledgement that some of the stuff that these heroes do is bad. Yeah. So, yeah, like, Theseus abandons Ariadne on an island. I think depending on the tradition, though, it's, like, sometimes, like, Dionysus told him to. Yeah. But sometimes, like, he doesn't. But, yeah, like, it's, it, these bad actions don't prevent them from being portrayed as heroic, where they, like, in our sort of modern-day context, they might. Yeah, of course. So, all this to say that this book is starting to sort of line up Percy with the idea of a hero, and wrestle more directly with what it means for Percy to be compared to these these earlier half-bloods, these earlier demigods who did all of this heroic stuff. And Percy is starting to really rack up a hero's resume in a lot of ways, and is therefore starting to have to reckon with what it means to be a hero and particularly Riordan is starting to contrast him against these earlier heroes and and make them foils to Percy. So it is to the benefit of the themes in the narrative to have these earlier heroes be portrayed as either less savvy or less moral or both. I think that in this case, we're getting less moral in the last book in some ways. I think we got less savvy because... The Sea of Monsters, we get a lot of Odysseus's adventures, and like at no point do we get the implication that Odysseus was not clever, but Percy and Annabeth know the Odyssey mm-hmm. and are kind of genre savvy to the kind of stuff they are going to encounter and are therefore able to deal with it differently and arguably in some cases better than Odysseus did. Which is a different kind of contrast, but still one that I think is relevant. We've moved past just knowledge of how to deal with things, though, because Percy is getting older and is getting more savvy and more aware of, like, how to survive in this world of gods and monsters. And now it's more about, well, you know how, in terms of the actual mechanics of fighting a monster or whatever, but, like, do you know how, in the moral and ethical sense to deal with these situations that you are encountering and still be eligible for heroism. Yeah, and I mean, I think we... This happens really sort of directly in the book because Percy kills the Nemean lion. Actually, it's kind of... This is a, a point of hilarity. He throws a bunch of, like, space food in its mouth and Zoe technically kills it, but she's like, well, I think the spoil, which is, like, the Nemean lion's fur belongs to you. Um, But near the end of the book, Percy makes a decision to use the Nemean lion's fur as an offering, and Zoe sort of looks at him and is like, well, you're not like Hercules. That is never something that Hercules would do. Um, So he's contrasted and is making this very different choice from Hercules. And he's also making it out of care for other people. Like, that's Percy's sort of one of his big personality traits and one that's actually brought up by Athena is that a lot of what motivates him is his his desire to like help his friends and his family sometimes to the extreme detriment of himself and everybody actually yes (laughs) um however he is also a literal child so (laughs) I mean yeah and we'll talk more about Percy and his his fatal flaw what Athena defines as personal loyalty when we get towards the end of the series because it'll come more into play 
later. It's just been identified now. Yes. Okay, I think it's important to talk about the gods in this book because a bunch of them show up. But I first want to start with a statement that Percy makes about the gods. So Percy says at one point, they tended to get offended easily, then they blew stuff up. Which pretty well summarizes the gods. Like, they get upset for, like, no good reason. They're like, we're just gonna fuck some shit up. (laughs) Yeah, they sure do that. I mean, they all have short tempers. And I mean, this is basically a summary of all of Greek mythology. Like, that's it. That's the whole, that's all of Greek mythology. Yeah. Um, The gods get mad, and then everything goes very poorly for all the mortals involved. Yes. Great. So first, we should probably talk about Apollo. (laughs) I live an Apollo hate life. Yeah, you're valid. I live a big-time Apollo hate life. Apollo, you suck. Never look at or speak to a woman again. Yes. Well, so mythologically, and this is, like, briefly referenced in the text, Apollo does trace down a nymph, and she's like, oh, shit, I really do not want to get sexually assaulted by Apollo. So she prays to her father to turn her into a tree. That is better than what Apollo's going to do to her. And there's an off, there's kind of a joke about that in the text, which I was like, Riordan, I don't know if this is really a thing to, like, make a kind of a crack about. I mean, I think the a bit of the problem is, is the way that, like, this gets portrayed in children's stories is like, oh, like, it's just this boy chasing this girl, and it doesn't necessarily have the context of sexual assault, because you, like, don't want to bring that into a children's story. Yeah, and I mean, it's not to say that Apollo never did anything good for, like, women in his life. He did, you know, he he was a bro to some women, but he, Apollo makes the joke in the text. Yeah. About Daphne, who is the, I mean, he doesn't really make a joke, but there's a reference to it. It's kind of lighthearted, and I just was like... Oh, boy. Yeah, that movie wasn't the greatest decision. Because, yeah, it was uh, not great. Anyways, anybody who's ever heard me talk about Apollo knows how much I hate him. I I did a... My undergraduate thesis was on raped women in Greek tragedy, and two of the four case studies were victims of Apollo. I don't... Yikes. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah. Um, And, I mean, so here... And the third one was... Three... The third of the four was Heracles. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it's not to say he's guiltless. Though, to be fair, that was less directly like a victimization situation and more just slavery. Great. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so Apollo also um, flirts with children in this book. God, he sure does. Um, also kind of weird because Talia is in fact his half-sister. But also what's even weirder is that Artemis is like, don't flirt with my hunters. And it's clear that this is the conversation that has been had before. And while some of the hunters are like thousands of years old, A, they look like children. And B, some of them still are children. So this is a repeated problem that Apollo has. And also... children. And also, they have all taken voluntarily a vow to not be with men ever, so are clearly not going to be interested. 
It's like picking the girl with her headphones in on the train to try to hit on. That is exactly what this is. It's like you have specifically chosen somebody who is broadcasting don't talk to me vibes. Yeah. So I feel like Riordan's in a little bit of a bind here because, again, you don't want to portray Apollo as a good person because it kind of, A, goes against how Riordan is portraying the gods and B, also, like, is not reflective of the shittiness in the mythology. But also, like, there's no way to talk about Apollo being shitty towards women in the context of a children's book without making it sort of humorous. So I kind of respect the bind that he's in. I feel like this was, like, not a bad direction to go in because I honestly don't know what else he could have done with this material. Yeah, I mean, do I wish that this was not a joke, more or less? Yes. But am I glad that it the way that it is dealt with at least, like, makes kind of the butt of the joke and it makes it clear that Apollo's behavior is problematic and unacceptable. Yeah. Like, that, that's okay. You know? Yeah. I think he did the best that he could with what he had available to him. I, I don't love it either way, but I'm glad that at least it's acknowledged that Apollo is kind of, you know, sex pest junior after his father. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that he doesn't get to get away with that or have it ignored in these texts. Well, also, he's not, like, being a sex pest towards people who can't, like, just say fuck off, which is kind of nice. Like, Artemis is like, don't go near my hunters, and he, he has to listen to her, right? Like, he, you know, might try a little bit of flirting, but, like, he cannot harm them. Like, that's a big no-no. So, at least it's not a sort of situation where it's like, oh, like, Apollo is flirting with somebody who has, like, no choice but to, you know, go along with it. Also, Apollo, what I think is one of the most hilarious parts of the book, is Apollo does all of these haikus, and they're all absolutely terrible. Oh, they're so bad. Oh my god. (laughs) I do like, I'll say this, I do like that Riordan does a pretty good job when depicting the gods of balancing all of their disparate aspects. Yes. Like, we really get Apollo as the god of prophecy and Apollo as the god of poetry and music and Apollo as the god of the sun in this book. Yeah. And also, like, we also get allusion towards the fact that Apollo is, like, an archer because, you know, his sister shows up and is doing the archery shit. Yeah, and that's not easy to do, and it is fairly impressive that Riordan manages to get it all in there without it feeling like, oh, and by the way, I also do this, you know? Yeah. No, and he does that a lot, like, with comedy, I've I've noticed. Like, Dionysus is often portrayed sort of comedically. And again, the terrible haikus are hilarious. Yeah. As an adult, that is still a very funny joke. But the serious moments really hit in comparison. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you just mentioned Dionysus, and I mean, not to, like, move forward too aggressively, but there's there's a moment with him that's like, oh, he's not joking around anymore. No. Okay. No. So I kind of want to go next to Aphrodite. I think this is the per- also the first time we see Aphrodite, and oh boy, did Riordan just nail her on the head. Yeah, yeah. I... I bookmarked the description of Aphrodite, which I would like to read. Yes. So on page 183, Percy gets into the back of a limo. 
or is bodily propelled into the back of a limo. With, by Aries. W- by Aries, yeah. And he says, When I saw her, my jaw dropped. I forgot my name. I forgot where I was. I forgot how to speak in complete sentences. She was wearing a red satin dress and her hair was curled into a cascade of ringlets. Her face was the most beautiful I'd ever seen. Perfect makeup, dazzling eyes, a smile that would have lit up the dark side of the moon. Thinking back on it, I can't tell you who she looked like, or even what color her hair or her eyes were. Pick the most beautiful actress you can think of. The goddess was 10 times more beautiful than that. Pick your favorite hair color, eye color, whatever. The goddess had that. And then he goes on. And it's like, yeah, yes, yes, perfect, good, thank you. This is like my number one problem with television adaptations. Any visual media Mm -hmm. that has Aphrodite in it is like, you have to decide what she looks like. And the truth of the matter is, she is the goddess of attraction and desire and and sexual love above all else. Mm And nobody's tastes are the same. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of a flaw. Yeah. So, listen, we've got to either just stop having Aphrodite have a physical depiction and just go abstract, or you just have to cast a bunch of people into that role and have her look different in different scenes. Mm. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. And also, it is worth noting that Aphrodite, like, is a goddess whose history spans way back into the Bronze Age. She probably comes from different places in the Near East and can be associated with different Near Eastern deities. And part of her worship was actually as an abstract deity, like not as a personified deity. So like before she was like personified, she was in fact, you know, like I think there's an example or something where they're just like worshiping this like stone. Yeah. This this, like rock, but the rock is Aphrodite. (laughs) But what I will also say about Aphrodite is they also nailed her personality on the head. Yes. Because she loves the chaos that is happening around people's romantic feelings. Specifically, so this really reflects actually the Greek sort of conceptions of love and the different types of love. So Aphrodite reflects what is passionate love, Eros. And this kind of seemed to be a bad thing. This is the sort of love that Helen and Paris share. And we all know how well that went. And that's actually something that Aphrodite references. She's like, oh, you're like, you and Annabeth are going to be like, you know, Helen in Paris. And Percy's like, um, didn't they start a war and get a bunch of people killed? And she's like, beside the point. (laughs) Yeah, like, the Greeks were very cognizant that people could get real dumb when their lower brains were doing the thinking. Yes. Yep. And also, like, she is, like, reveling in the suffering that Percy is going to have around his romantic life, which we will get to more strongly in the next two books. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, she does, she does love suffering. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, she's, she's like watching a soap opera, basically. For her, and I mean, this is, like, something that, this is something that we see in the Greek sources as well. As far as Aphrodite is concerned... As long as people are following their hearts and are, like, accepting love into their life, it doesn't matter what else happens. And and if people try to reject her and reject, like, love and romance and sexuality, she tends to get real big mad. 
One of my favorite tragedies of all time is Hippolytus by Euripides, which is very much a story about a guy who is like, no, women and marriage are not for me. I would like to go frolic in the woods with my buddies and worship Artemis and like hunt deer and never have sex with women ever in my life. Shout out to Hippolytus, the gay ace representation that we deserve. Yes. And Aphrodite is like, uh, no. And then she curses his stepmother to fall in love with him. And it all goes very horribly wrong. And he ends up getting cursed by his father, Theseus, to be torn apart horribly. And it's really just a bad, it's just very bad. It all goes really bad. And Aphrodite's like, okay, that's fine. Like, that's what you get for not being willing to worship me. Yep. Yep. And that generally is how things go with the gods. It's like, okay, doesn't really matter what you want. We're feeling pissy, so we're gonna, like, ruin your entire life and have you die in a really horrible way. Yeah. And Aphrodite is kind of the queen of that. Yes. Okay, so the next person that... I want to move on to is Dionysus. Oh, uh, yeah. We get a great Dionysus scene in this book. Yes. And this is the first, so this is, like, before this Dionysus has mostly been portrayed as, like, dude who is mad because he can't get drunk right now because his dad banned him from getting drunk. And he's, you know, portrayed as kind of, like, a whiny little piss baby. But here, he's a whiny little piss baby with big power. Big scary power. Oh, yeah. Terrifying. He, like makes a bunch of people go insane and it's big time scary i mean the growing grapevines out of the floorboards of the pier is also very scary but like honestly the making people go insane thing is like the big scary thing that dionysus does and it was cool to like get it in this because we haven't really seen it at all yeah and also i think it's I had this thought, which is perhaps a stupid thought that I should have had earlier in my life, but, like, Dionysus is the god of, like, alcohol and also madness, and that these two things are very much interrelated. Yes. Um, And especially sort of in, like... I mean, to combine the two, you could basically say that Dionysus is the god of altered states. Yes. And also in sort of a lot of, like, both Greek and Roman portrayals of Dionysus and also worship and discussion of Dionysus like we see these combined like so for example there's this whole moral panic is a good word for this that the Roman elite have around worship of Dionysus which is like imagine ancient Roman people doing the satanic panic so they're basically convinced (laughs) like like am I wrong though that's what happens um, so uh, they're like, I don't know if any we got any you're wrong about fans on here, but like, shout out to shout out to excellent current events podcast or recently recent past events podcast you're wrong about, which is a, one of the hosts is among other things working on a book about the satanic panic. Yeah, so if you want more satanic panic info, or know, like moral panics in general, yeah, that's where you go. But now it's our time to talk about an ancient moral panic. So basically what happens, like, you know, so a satanic panic is, like, everybody, you know, sort of thinks that, like, the youths are 
intermingling and doing drugs and worshiping Satan. And but so the ancient version of this is also the youths are intermingling and doing drugs and sorry, I forgot having sex. Yes. Um, having sex and worshiping Dionysus. Yeah. So Dionysus is the equivalent of Satan here. Um. Every once in a while. I mean, listen, I love being in classics. I love being in, you know, ancient Mediterranean studies and learning about the ancient world and ancient society. But God, sometimes I'll learn something or I'll like be thinking about something and I'll just have to think to myself, wow, human society really is the same. Yep. Like humans have been the same for 2,500 years and longer. We really, I mean, we've made a lot of progress as a society, but we sure do lose our shit over all of the same stuff. Oh yeah, no, this is like, (laughs) again, like a bunch of conservatives panicking and making up a whole story about what like the youths and the poor people and the enslaved peoples are doing. And then, like, punishing a bunch of people for shit they didn't actually do because they're really having this, like, broader social-cultural anxiety. Yeah. So that's the Bacchanalia affair. Yep. (laughs) The Bacchanalia, ancient Roman satanic panic. You heard it here first. I think that's the best thing that I've ever said. I need to, like, trademark that. Yeah. Write it. Do a paper. All right. Who else? What other gods? We, we're we only, like, halfway through the gods that appear in this book. It, kind of all of the gods yeah. show up but in like, this book. But, like, I feel like these are, the, those three are kind of the main ones that are, like, important. But then the last one that I wanted to mention is Athena, because she sucks. <laughs> okay. For the listeners, Allison and I had a bit of a debate about this earlier. I don't think she sucks that bad. I think, I mean, I'm not going to say that she doesn't suck. She does kind of suck. But I don't think she sucks more than anybody else. Yes. No, no, okay, that's fair enough. However, she does say that murdering Percy would be a good strategic move, which, I mean... If she's right. She's right. <laughs> However, also, you shouldn't murder children. No, you know? but she doesn't say... We've already had this argument. No, this is a stupid argument. We're not going to have it again. No, but I'd like to state my stance on the record, which is that she doesn't say that they should. She says it would be strategically wise. I think those thing, those two things are not particularly indistinguishable because then, again, Athena doesn't really like care about people or what's happening with them, right? Not really, no. Yeah, so I think those two things are not as indistinguishable she not as distinguishable is, as you would like. Athena is portrayed as being fundamentally utilitarian in her mindset. And, like, it's interesting. I'll say this. It's an interesting choice on Riordan's part to have that be the thing that she is arguing for. Because, like, I'm not saying that Athena in the mythology in, like, Greek sources that I am familiar with is not fairly utilitarian. She can be, for sure. I just think that what we consider strategically wise is extremely cultural Mm, yeah. And that what he has gone with in terms of, like, having it be this kind of utilitarian thing, like, you could argue as much that the gods doing everything they can to court Percy's favor and ensure that he and the other half-bloods are well-treated would be just as wise in terms of preventing one of them from turning to the dark side and fucking everything up for everybody. However, that's not really in line with 
the point of the books, which is that the gods suck and treat their children terribly. Well, yeah, of course. Right? It's just that I'm just saying that having this be presented as a kind of objective wisdom from the goddess of wisdom Mm -hmm. and strategy is interesting. Well, so... I don't know if I fully agree, because the thing is, is sure, you can get somebody's favor, but there's no guarantee that it's going to work, right? Whereas the child murder does mean that no child will appear that has the power to, like, destroy Olympus. However, like, we already know the prophecies, like, can't be beaten, so... Well, exactly. We know that prophecies can't be beaten. Exactly. Exactly. It becomes problematic to say, well, we know that prophecies can't be... We know that prophecies can't be beaten, but we're just gonna continue futilely murdering all of these children in order to beat this prophecy. It's like, okay, well, so obviously that's not going to work. Yeah. So should the wise thing not be to actually kind of try to find some other way to circumvent, right? Because yeah. you'd think that just trying to murder all of these children would do nothing but make them hate you. Yeah. Which, Percy comes pretty close to that. Yeah. Although, you know what I think maybe Riordan is getting at is that Athena thinks of herself as utilitarian, but is actually sort of making these emotional decisions. Like, we see her make emotional decisions well, in mythology. So, like, because the thing is, is she's really, like... What really sort of comes through is she's like, I do not like your friendship with my daughter. And so yeah. clearly there's something emotional going on in the background, but, you know, she's she's maybe under the impression that she's being totally utilitarian. Yeah, well, and of course, I'm not much of a philosopher. I took a philosophy elective in my first year of university, and I wanted to murder my professor by the end of it. Oh, yes. Philosophy professors sure do exist. I've known um, one philosophy professor that I could stand. Shout out to Michael Griffin. Yes. Who definitely does not remember who I am. <laughs> Anyways, but most philosophy professors, dear God. Anyways, but I do think that even kind of, except for like true utilitarianism done by somebody who spends all of their time calculating benefit and and like pros mm-hmm. and cons, is never going to be truly utilitarian because the truth of the matter is... The idea of making all of your decisions in life based on the greater good still requires a personal valuation of what the greater good is. Mm, yeah. I mean, I think you found the flaw in utilitarianism. Yeah, which so, I mean, by no means... So somebody else probably has. Yeah, I mean, but. by no means am I the first person to find the flaw in utilitarianism. I'm just saying that I think that, as you were saying, that's what we're seeing with Athena. She is making emotional judgments because while she is a very utilitarian thinker and very willing to kind of I guess what you would call play the devil's advocate in that she is the one to say this is an option and maybe the safer option Mm, yeah she doesn't actually vote for it yeah you know she doesn't actually at any point explicitly advocate that what they should do is kill Percy. Just that it is an option that exists and is safer than letting him run around because he is a person with free will. Also, sorry, I have to do an apology before we continue. My grandfather is in fact a philosophy professor. Not all philosophy professors are terrible. Sorry, Grandpa, I love you. (laughs) Hashtag not all philosophers. (laughs) So should we talk about Artemis? Um, I kind of want to save Artemis for gender. However, gender is my next bullet point. 
Corinth. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to talk about Artemis, but we're also going to talk about gender. <laughs> okay, yeah. I definitely, reading this book, was thinking to myself, like, I feel like there's probably some stuff to say about the way gender gets dealt with in this book, particularly re-Artemis and the Hunters, but I, as previously mentioned, had no brain cells. So, go off, Allison. Yeah. So, Artemis's take on gender is, like, very gender essentialist. Like, you know, she's definitely... Definitely along the lines of, like, say, political lesbianism, where it's like, all men are inherently terrible, so we should just be lesbians. Except in her case, she just, like, hangs out with a bunch of, like, teenage girls who then become immortal. Yeah. So there's nothing specifically textual to say that she's a turf. However, she does kind of have turf energy a little bit. <laughs> little bit, yeah. I mean... Knowing what I know about Rick Riordan, I'm sure that when he wrote this, he did not... I mean, probably not when he wrote this, but I'm sure that now he does not imagine that trans women would be excluded from membership in Artemis' Hunters. Yes, I would, like, 100% on board with that. Because Rick Riordan is a bro. Yeah. However, I think he might write this differently if he were writing it now. Possibly. I Although, mean, again, Artemis is not necessarily portrayed as, like, right for that, right? Like, no, it is she's proven not. That the, the male characters are, you know, not total shitheads. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it's one of these, it's another one of these things that's quite complicated, that Artemis is Artemis. But, like, at least some of her hunters, I would imagine, have reason to, to disavow the company of men. Yes. I mean, Zoe has had very bad experiences with male heroes and has reason to think that men suck, you know? And, like, okay, is it quite essentialist? Yes. But see again people having emotional reactions. And also, to be fair, Artemis is very, like, gender essentialist in the mythology. Yes. Actaeon, like, accidentally sees her bathing and she's like, well, guess you gotta die now. However, the one thing about Artemis that, like, pisses me off more than anything else in this book is the fact that she's like, hey, Bianca, you just had a really traumatic thing happen. Let me sign you up for an immortal contract. I mean, they can leave. The hunters can just decide to leave. Yeah, but it seems a little bit I mean, it is manipulative, manipulative, right? Yes. And also to get a 14-year-old orphan to leave her, like, young brother. Yeah, I think Nico's like, Wait, 10? no, no, she's 12. Sorry, she's 12, and yeah, Nico's 10, which, like, wow, it's a lot. It's a lot going on there. Also, just, yeah. in general, R.I.P. Bianca. Yeah. Rick Riordan just, like, stuck his hand in my chest and just ripped my heart out, and then stomped on it. Yeah. Bianca's fate is very upsetting. She yes. does die, and... She does specifically sacrifice herself to save the others, and it's, yeah, it's upsetting. It is worth noting that, again, she's definitely the youngest out of them here. Like, Grover is something, like, in his 20s, although he's, like, a teenager in um, Sater's standards. Yeah. Percy is 14 by this point. Zoe is immortal, and Talia's 15. So... The fact that, like, the 12-year-old sacrifices herself is yeah. really a bit rough. Well, and the, the 12-year-old ends up sacrificing herself because she made a stupid mistake that put them all in danger in the first place. And it's like, oh, this sucks. 
that this kid had to die for doing, like, a dumb kid thing. Yes. But also, it was a dumb kid thing that she did out of love for her brother, because she she yeah. grabbed this figurine. Her little brother loves this game called Mytho Magic, and there's all these, like, mythological figurines of all, like, the gods and stuff, and she picks up this figurine, and it was the only god that he didn't have. Yeah. And it was just, like, again, just, like, ripped my heart out. Just yeah. set me on fire. It's incredibly painful. It's very upsetting. It's a little, to me, I guess I'll say this, reading it this time, I was kind of like, why did this have to happen? Respectfully, I say this with all the love in my heart for Rick Riordan, Bianca kind of gets fridged. Oh, I was just thinking that, yeah. She does kind of get fridged. Like, she really does die to motivate Nico to run off so that stuff can happen with Nico later. Yeah, like, and it is really, like, a turning point in Nico's character development, so... Bianca dies for Nico's man pain. Rick Riordan, you fridged Bianca D'Angelo, and I'm never gonna forgive you. Oh, the last thing I have to mention, sorry, (laughs) we got really sidetracked with how tragic Bianca's story is. Uh, Grover is said to not technically be a boy because he's a satyr, which... Yeah, that one kind of got me, given that satyrs, like, in Greek mythology, are frequently basically just around to be horny. Yeah. In a, an ex- in this very, like, stereotypically masculine way, and as, like, an exaggeration of stereotypical masculine sexuality. Yeah. So I mean- it was kind of funny are not funny, but, like, kind of interesting to me to have Riordan be like, no, he's not really technically a boy, when, like, satyrs are usually, like, the worst as far as pursuing women who aren't interested. I mean, you know, it is a plot mechanic because they need a reason for Grover to be able to go on this quest with these hunters who say they won't go on quests with men. Right. And so, but still, it was a moment. Okay, we're going to briefly move on to Rick Riordan's politics here, because there are a few things in this book that are kind of political. In the broader sense, not like in the specific, like, this is Democratic or this is Republican. Yeah. Or if you're in Canada, like, this is the Conservatives versus the Liberals. You know, like the broader sense of politics. So the first thing is that at one point, and I can't, could we, neither Julie and I could find this in the book, but at one point... Percy is questioning why there are mortals working for, like, these horrific monsters. And, like, oh, what do they see through the mist? And one of the characters replies, I don't think the mortals actually care if they were working for monsters. Which sure is a statement, because it's true. People are bad, in conclusion. Yeah. Oh, found it. Yeah, uh, on page 148, after the encounter with the Nemean lion, there's a conversation... They're being chased by a helicopter, and Grover says, maybe the military will shoot it down, Grover said, hopefully. And then, the military probably thinks it's one of theirs, I said. How can the general use mortals anyway? Mercenaries, Zoe said bitterly. It is distasteful, but many mortals will fight for any cause as long as they are paid. But don't these mortals see who they're working for, I asked? Don't they notice all the the monsters around them? Zoe shook her head. I do not know how much they see through the mist. I doubt it would matter to them if they knew the truth. Sometimes mortals can be more horrible than monsters. Ayo. Yeah. Which I mean, I actually, that line caught my attention too, because a lot of wars were fought in classical antiquity with mercenaries. Like, 
there were big swaths of time where the national military of a lot of places and people was like not super well trained. They were kind of citizen militias and they were often like recruited farmers who had to go back to their farms in the summers or in the winters or whatever when they were not being, when they were busy doing farm stuff. So it's just kind of interesting to have a modern moral judgment of mercenaries arise because used to be like it was all mercenaries or like big chunks of armies were mercenaries but also i would like to point out that like let's be honest here the u.s military would be a lot smaller if they didn't fucking pay people oh yeah like most soldiers even in the modern day they obey orders because they would not get paid if they didn't Yes, and people often sometimes don't have better options than to join the military. Yeah, there are a lot of economic factors that would pressure somebody into becoming a soldier. And, like, I don't know, I find moral judgments of mercenaries always a little weird. Yeah. It's like, oh, you would commit crimes for money. It's like, that's the reason most people commit any crime. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this is a broader judgment about, like, people committing crimes, right? Yes. Like, I mean, Ryden is very clear that, like, the existence of quote-unquote monsters does not mean that humans are cannot be monstrous. Yes. That's a theme, as yeah. one would say. Yeah. I'm just saying yeah. that if the judgment we're passing is, oh, these people obey monsters and do monstrous things to get paid, like, that is frankly a judgment on the entire U.S. military. Well, yeah. Yes, that that's fair. The other thing is that at the end of the book, Luke once again sort of almost like this time pleads with Annabeth and Talia to like join him, tear down the gods, rebuild a new world. And it really sort of like reflects this like broader idea within and this broader debate inside like social justice spaces of like working within the system versus working outside of the system. Now, in this sort of framework, working within the system is portrayed as the right thing to do, but there's two things that are happening here. A, outside of the system is evil. Yeah. And B, this is sort of imagining a world, which is something that happens a lot in fantasy, where people who otherwise would not have agency are all of a sudden given a lot of agency to try and force these decisions to happen, to force the people in power to listen to them. Yeah, so... I'll say, I think that it is a bit of a false equivalency to say that Luke is the equivalent of somebody in, like, a social justice debate who is saying, we have to burn it down, we can't reform the system from the inside, because he's not working to reform the system. What he has done is completely given up on the system as it stands, or more accurately, he has said... The people who are in charge of this system are bad. I am going to go help some other person, like, take over. I, I think it's not quite the same as saying, well, the system is rotten. It's saying the people who are in charge are rotten. Let's put someone else in charge. Well, so that's not exactly what's indicated by specifically what Luke says, because he specifically says that, A, we're going to tear the god down, but B, that you... that him and Annabeth and I think also Talia will get to rule. 
like he's framing it like well, he's not really so, but thinking what, but about But then Kronos. so what he's saying is that the person that we should put in charge is us. But that's not the same as actually reforming the system. No, but it is I think it is reflecting that tension a little bit. A little bit. I just think it's a slightly false equivalency because like I just I think that there is a difficulty in trying to make that equivalency that makes it sort of sound like, well, people who are reformers and advocates for violent revolution are the same as people who are trying to put themselves in charge. Because then you could say, for example, that the white supremacists who stormed the U.S. Capitol in January are like Luke. They are arguing that what we have to do in order to fix the system is to tear down what exists and put someone else in charge. And it's like, so that's like, which is not like, it's not quite the same as actually creating a more equitable system. Well, so I think it's sitting in this interesting tension here because A, I think there are people in leftist spaces who definitely do think the same way Luke does a little bit. Of course. Um, But also B, Luke in this sort of like framework is definitely somebody who has been like, done dirty, right? He's not somebody who's reflecting an anxiety about losing power. He's somebody who didn't have power and has been, like, deeply hurt by the people in charge. So it's, it's no, of course. existing in this, like, space in between, I think. I mean, it's- yes, because it is a metaphor and it is impossible to directly correlate what is happening in these books to something that is happening the the way that politics work in real life yeah because the truth of the matter is it just doesn't work like this in real life yeah but what i'm saying is i mean okay i i guess to contextualize some of my comments here i was having a conversation earlier with some people about the hunger games Mm -hmm. and the ending of the hunger games trilogy wherein the leader of the rebellion installs herself as another dictator and basically plans to go on hosting the Hunger Games and, like, continuing to perpetuate the exact same crimes that the Capitol had perpetuated before, but this time in the name of justice and, like, retribution against the Capitol for all the crimes that they'd committed. Which is, as you're saying, it's somebody who didn't have any power, seizing power, and using it to be violent. And, like, I think that that sort of thing is not a very good like political message because it creates a kind of both sidesism wherein both the dictator and the violent specifically violent rebel are essentially as bad as each other it acknowledges that the system is flawed but refuses to acknowledge that violence can be necessary to rebellion and does not necessarily create in a person and in a cause the same kind of cruelty and inequity that whatever the system was created in the first place. It's like saying, well, absolute power corrupts absolutely and applying that equally to both sides of a like system rebellion dichotomy. Well, so what I think is happening here a little bit is like Riordan is saying something that I don't think either of us necessarily agree with. Like, I think it, it's like that this is sort of a lens that a lot of sort of, say, centrists think about leftists, right? Like, it's it's their sort of, like, view of what is happening yes. on the left. I mean, yeah, it's this idea of, like, well, oh, you've gone over to extremism in order to try to fix yeah. the problems in the world. And it's like, that's not actually what's happening. Yeah, but it's what people 
think is happening. Yes. But um, it is, of course, an extremely flawed depiction because, yeah, like, Luke is depicted as... Because it's a flawed depiction because the truth of the matter is what Luke has done in going over to join Cronus is not the same as what many leftists are arguing for when they argue for violent rebellion. Yes, but I think that... I think that the fact that those two things are the same aren't the same as what I'm getting at. Like, people think they are the same. Well, exactly. Yes. I mean, yeah. I yeah. think we've come to... I think yes. we have managed to stop talking past each other. Yes. Yeah. 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 We're, we're thinking through this. Um, yes. But I also think it's really interesting because I feel like this happens in a lot of fantasy and also the sort of fantasy that I... I'm not going to say that I write. I say that I think about writing because I'm bad at actually writing. But is the idea that, like you can reform the system if you change this this one little thing which is that all of a sudden that these the people who are being oppressed actually have the agency to the cha- to change the system so yeah. you know you do this by like giving people magic powers or like for example putting these like kids in a position where like these are the people who have to save the world i don't know i just think that's really interesting we, we got to wrap this up allison's got to go to bed petty gripes okay. slash uh, other small things that we liked. Okay, let me see if I... Okay, sort of a petty gripe at this point, just because we've been talking about it this whole time. The Western civilization thing comes up at least once yeah. in this. It continues to be bad, but I I think we've done a good enough job of talking about it in the last couple of episodes and the issues with it, and that Riordan didn't know better, <laughs> that there's no point continuing yeah. to rag yeah. on it. Mm-hmm. I think so. The there's kind of an interesting comment that Dionysus makes at one point on page 96. He says, I'm a young god, remember? I won't even read the rest of the quote. That's the important part. It was just interesting to me because Dionysus is depicted as young and portrayed, like he's portrayed as young in classical mythological sources, Mm -hmm. in, you know, tragedy and all this other stuff. But Historically, Dionysus is actually one of the oldest members of the Greek pantheon. We have his name in Linear B. Interesting. Yeah. Like, Dionysus has been around as a figure in Greek and, like, proto-Greek civilization for 3,000 years and more. He's very old. Yeah. I mean, he's not the only one. I think, I want to say we have, like... Demeter as well, and like a few others who go back similarly far. But like Dionysus historically is not younger than any of the other gods. Yeah. It is only in his mythology that he is young and foreign. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's also worth, just as a side note, Linear B is the writing of the Mycenaeans, and it's essentially like the precur- precursor to like Greek. So yeah. it's what people are using like. 1200 BCE. And if we're comparing that to, like, when, you know, people start to use Greek, it's, like, 800 BCE-ish, you know? So there's... It's that, like, 500-year-old precursor to not modern ancient Greek, to ancient Greek. Yes, to to (laughs) classical Greek. Classical Greek, thank you. Yeah. I mean, Homeric and then classical Greek. Yeah. Anyways. Actually, I have a funny side note related to that. Yeah. Um, there's one point in the book where Zoe yells about how English changes too much. Um, oh, my God. And I think this is funny because, like, there's, like, 500 Greek dialects. 
Yeah. Like, there's a there's roughly a bajillion Greek dialects. And yeah. It's like, okay, if you learned all of those Greek dialects, which presumably you did because you were a hunter who went all over Hell's Half Acre, <laughs> you can you can you can learn English. All over Hellas's Half Acre. Oh. <laughs> I am on my game tonight. <laughs> the heat. <laughs> In any case, you're right. Yeah, no, she. I'm sure she spoke all kinds of Greek dialects, and so she really doesn't get to complain. No. And yeah, like, sorry, no, to go back, to go on about this for a little bit more. I mean, I just mentioned, like, Homeric and then Classical. Like, so, because we get proto, we have an idea of Proto-Greek from the Mycenaeans, and then about kind of 500 years later, we have the emergence of kind of what we know as, like, Homeric Greek, which is a fairly distinct dialect from what emerges about 300 years after that, which is Classical Greek. And then shortly, at, like, once we get out of Classical Greek, kind of another 300 years, we start to see more and more the emergence of Koine Greek, though even Classical Greek was extremely dialectical. You yeah. got, there were major differences between the different parts of, like, the Greek world. Yeah. Particularly between kind of mainland Greece and Ionia, so the, like, colonies and territories on, in Western Asia. It is also worth noting that even, like, Homeric Greek, like, that's what we have written down, right? And we have very little written down. Like, presumably there was, like, you know, what people were speaking and perhaps even writing and stuff that doesn't survive, you know, again, we are, there would have presumably been lots of dialogue. Yeah, I mean, we call it Homeric Greek because what we have of it is Homer. Homer. Hesiod? Is Hesiod, like... I I don't know. I actually don't know very much about Hesiod and Hesiodic Probably for the best. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe one day I will learn, but... What's... And I guess we have, like, the Homeric hymns and stuff, which are also yeah. approximately yeah. in that dialect. Anyways, and then, yeah, and I mean, it's the same kind of drift over a long period of time that we see with English, and in fact, the only reason classical Greek in many ways is so, like, well-preserved and why we have such a clear idea of it is because the Romans started, like, in the Roman period, a bunch of authors were writing in, like, fairly pristine classical Greek because it was considered sort of academically... Mm good to yeah. do so. Yes. So we get the second sophistic and a bunch of people are writing in this extremely correct Attic Greek, which is like even more correct than classical Attic Greek in some ways. Yeah. I have one I have one sticky note in here that was kind of interesting that we do get one little I this book takes most of its stuff from Hercules, a little bit from Jason or Cadmus, depending on who you want to attribute the dragon's teeth to let's go with cadmus because we hate jason <laughs> but we do also get a little odysseus in here because we get nereus the old man of the sea mm, yeah who odysseus visits which i thought was kind of fun i only had oh, one joke. more thing which was my my absolute delight from this book <laughs> which is the uh, the damn joke. I so this is when I was a child. I thought literally this was the funniest thing I'd ever heard in my entire life. Absolutely sent me. I was like, <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> I just I was like, this book is for children, but Riordan has found a way around it that is just so clever. There's this long exchange about two hundred pages in. Which starts with Zoe saying, let us find the damn snack bar, Zoe says. We should eat while we can. I So they're at the Hoover Dam at this point. Yes, they are at it's the Hoover context. Dam. Damn D-A-M. And Grover says, the damn snack bar? 
And so he blinks and says, yes, what is funny? Nothing, Grover said, trying to keep a straight face. I could use some damn french fries. Even Talia smiled at that, and I need to use the damn restroom. (laughs) Um, They all just... They all just crack up. It kind of keeps going for a little while, and, like, I don't know, maybe it's because when I was... Maybe I just imprinted on this joke because when I was in grade four, my teacher told us a joke that had essentially this as a punchline, which was, what did the fish say when it ran into a wall? Oh, damn. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean... I I was, like, ten, so I totally imprinted on this joke because it was my school teacher swearing in front of us. Anyways, it's a great joke. I just... It's really clever. Yeah. Well, again, I was, like... Because Julia was, like, there's a joke that I thought was the funniest thing in the world. I was, like, I wonder if this is the joke that I was obsessed with when I was a little kid, and it is. I, again, I thought, like, I kept saying this to my parents. My parents were like, this isn't that funny, Allison. I'm like, no, it's so funny. Okay, I have, like, literally one more thing I need to say. It is. So, my last uh, thing, these are not really, none of these are really gripes. They're just small things, really. And my favorite part is, like, this book totally dates itself at the school dance because, A, the the girls are wearing spaghetti straps, tops, Oh my a throwback, God. and also they're dancing to Jesse McCartney and Green Day. Uh, <laughs> yes, our childhoods. Yes, just a throwback to the like mid two thousands. Yeah, what a what a house again era. Though I suppose everybody feels that way about yeah. the music and culture of their childhoods. Yes, I mean mostly I feel like it was a little bit cursed, but in the best way. Oh, yeah. Like, I feel like it's not how people, you know, feel about, like, the 70s or the 80s. So, like, yeah, like, it was great. The, the early 2000s were an absolute shit show. Yeah. But it was hilarious, looking back on it. Yeah. Like, people would wear full jean outfits in, with plastic purses. Like. Yeah, what was happening? I, nobody knows. Also, there's a lot of drama around spaghetti strap tops because, and it was so ridiculous because, you would literally be covered from, like, your collarbone down, but, like, your shoulders were exposed, and so, like, that was too much skin. Yeah, I um, remember, I remember that. Yeah, my mom's like, you're not allowed to wear a spaghetti strap top, and I'm like, but, but why, though? Yeah. Um, anyway. Made no goddamn sense. We'll, we'll end with our, uh, our reminiscences of our, of the early 2000s. These books really just make me very nostalgic. <laughs> listening to Classically Trained. This podcast is hosted and produced by Allison Merlin and Julia Peroni on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations and on the ancestral land of the Ho-Chunk Nation. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on our website, classicallytrainedpod.podbean.com, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to reach us, we can be emailed at classicallytrainedpod at gmail.com, contacted via Twitter at classicallypod, or you can leave a review. Finally, some acknowledgements. We'd first like to thank Nicholas Judy and Dark Fantasy Studio, who produced our wonderful music. We would also like to thank the Society for Classical Studies for their help in supporting this podcast. Our next episode will be on the fourth Percy Jackson novel, Battle of the Labyrinth, and will feature a special guest. As always, be well, and do not, under any circumstances, do as the Romans did.